If you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. This is our second to last week in James. Did that go quick? That seemed like that went really quick to me. Um, This morning, we're going to be talking about the power of prayer. And um, I love this church. One of the things that stood out to me when I came here is that people here pray for each other and people pray. And I've just been so encouraged by just the fact that on Sunday morning, during the, the first Sunday school hour, there are a group of people that pray for people in this church and pray for this service and pray for me, and I am so thankful for that. Somebody texted me this morning who's not going to be here today and just told me what they were praying for me about. And just seeing the way people in this church pray for each other. Now, this week I, I was excited because I showed up at church and I saw a couple people here getting ready for a ministry thing that's happening this week. And it was just so cool to see people working hard to plan to make good things happen. And as I walked out the door a couple hours later, I saw those people sitting and praying. Man, that's why things go so well at this church. That's why ministry is so powerful and effective because people work hard and they do their part, but they pray. Now, our prayer is really an expression of a close relationship with our Heavenly Father. Like, just think about how you love your kids and what your relationship with your kids is like. And that's actually one of the things that Jesus says. He says, you're evil. You people are evil. And you give good things to your kids. If evil people give good things to their kids, won't our good Heavenly Father who loves us give us good things? And so God loves us. And I was just thinking about, like, in my relationship with my kids, I love my kids, and I would give my kids anything. Like, there were years that Michelle and I, we had no money, and our kids needed things, and we would figure out how to get it for them. And we made huge personal sacrifices for things that they need. One thing is we were able to put our kids in a, in a school that while they went through their public high school, they would get a couple years of college done while they were in high school, but we actually had to drive across town. And at that point in our life, we actually used to calculate where we would drive. We would say, okay, we gotta go to the store, and we would go that direction, and, but we had to combine trips because we actually couldn't afford to drive. And so for me to have to drive um, you know, twice a week, you know, twice a day actually, to drop them off and to pick them up, like we actually couldn't afford the gas. And I just remember thinking, but we love our kids. This is going to be a blessing in their future. And so we figured it out. And I I think about this passage. Prayer is powerful because God loves us and God cares for us and God gives us things. But I want to tell you something about my kids too. Um, I want them to do well in school. Me and Michelle, we, we were on that. Neither of us were good students in high school. But our kids got A's and if they ever came home with an A minus, I was like, what happened? What went wrong? I mean, seriously, an A minus? Like, what is this? And our kids used to, you know, we cared about their education. We cared about those things. And we care about how they're doing in their job. Like, we're excited. My kids drive nicer cars than I do, and they bought their own cars. And so we're excited about that. But on a scale of 1 to 10, that ends up being a a 2 or a 3, their grades, their job. It's a 2 or a 3 of the things we care about. What we really care about in our kids' life is their relationship with the Lord, how they're doing spiritually. And there have been times in our kids' lives where they've demonstrated a bad attitude about something, 
And, there, you know, there's no limit to what I won't take away from them if they have a bad attitude. You know, there have been things I'm like, I pay for that phone, hand it over. And that car that you're driving, that's not your car, that's my car when they're driving our cars. So you're not driving. But, Dad, if I don't have a phone, if I don't have a computer, if I don't have a car, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to fail school. And I'm just like, and? I don't care if you get fired. I don't care if you fail school. What I care about is your spiritual well-being. There is no limit to what I won't take away from my kids if what they have is harming them, if they need discipline and correction in their life. And what we learn in this passage, so James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18, I got to tell you, in one sense, it is my favorite passage in the book of James. It's one of my favorite ones. When I went to Church of the Canyons, way back when I was... I think I was 19 years old. They asked me to teach, and this was the passage I taught on. And, man, that was a tough passage. So I love this passage for actually many reasons, but it's also the most difficult passage in the book of James. Now, remember before we talked about faith and works, James chapter 2? That's the most controversial because people don't like what it says. It's not that it's impossible to figure it out. It's just after you figure out, people don't like it. But James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18, is difficult to figure out what is this saying? What does it mean? And so this is a challenging passage, and in some ways, I was glad it was at the end of the book, and I was, I've been dreading today in some ways, but excited about it. And I just got to tell you, I studied it again hard. It's not the first time I've studied it, and there are still some things that are difficult in there. Let me tell you about the good news about this passage. The important things, the point of the passage is clear. We know what it's saying. We know what to do about it. And then there's some things that bring some humility because we're just not sure. Well, well, what is this? And so I'll point some of those things out, and I'll tell you how I approach that. So let's look at this passage. It is powerful. When you think about prayer in your life, prayer is significant. So when Jesus was here on earth, he prayed I mean, this is God who took on flesh and his life was dominated by prayer. So much so that his disciples said, hey, Jesus, teach us to pray. We want to pray. And it's because they saw what a big deal it was in his life. And so this morning we're going to learn three really important things about prayer. And this is the main point of this passage. And that's number one, you should pray all the time personally. You should pray in every circumstance, in every situation. And that really flows out of what we've learned in James, that God's in control. His will is what matters. His will is what we're supposed to seek. And everything that happens to us, good or bad, fits into God's plan. And so we need to pray when things are good because God's given those to us. When we're facing difficulties and struggles, we pray because God's brought those into our life for a reason. And so we pray in every situation. The second thing is, we need to ask other people to pray for us. This passage says that when you're struggling greatly, you are to call the elders of the church to pray for you. And then it goes on to say, pray for each other. And so we pray personally, but we also pray corporately. And then he gives us this illustration of the power of prayer and what makes prayer so powerful. Prayer and faith... And prayer that comes from a righteous life is powerful. And that's because prayer is really an expression of our relationship with God. I mean, that's what God says, right? 
I love you. You're my children. What wouldn't I give you? But John chapter 14, verse 14 through 15 or 16 or 17, um, Jesus says, ask anything according to my will and I'll give it to you. And then he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. It's like all right next to each other. And so sometimes we wonder, um, is God going to answer my prayer? Well, in one sense, do you love Jesus? And if you do, Jesus loves you and you love Jesus. But how do you know if you love Jesus? Well, you're obeying him. And so powerful prayer comes out of a life that obeys. So um, I always like to give you my whole sermon before we start. But that's kind of where we're headed. So let's jump into this. James chapter 5, verse 13. We need to pray personally in every situation. Look at this. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Well, that's both ends of life. These are words that say when things are hard, pray. When things are good, sing praises. So that's the, the suffering. That could be hardship, evil, trouble. It could be any kind of difficulty. You remember James 1, 2 through 12, or that, that section there, where it says, consider it joy when you encounter trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. And without reproach, and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So James has already talked to us about praying in faith for difficulty. Um, and he, so he just says, let him pray. Now that word for prayer, that is the most common word for prayer. It's used all over the New Testament. When the disciples say to Jesus teach us to pray. This is the word that they use. It's this all-encompassing word. And so prayer was certainly a priority in their life. Now, when you think about suffering and difficulty, what would you pray for? Well, some things that I could think of that a person might pray for when they're going through difficulty is removal of the difficulty. <laughs> you know, it's like when I got problems, I, I do. I pray. I say, God, take these problems away. Now, a lot of times I also pray, and this is, I think, important. It's a point of what James talks about in James chapter 1, is we need to pray for help to get the benefit of the trial, to learn and grow, to remain faithful, to trust and to love God in the difficulty because God doesn't always take it away. But we want God's wisdom in helping us through that for strength to endure. You ever seen people suffering, going through difficulty, and they get discouraged and they give up? See, we pray that God will keep us going, that we won't give up. And you know, the other thing that happens to me a lot when I'm suffering or going through difficulty is I actually pray for other people. And I pray for other people in the midst of my struggle because I think about all the people I know who are going through harder things than what I'm going through. And I just think if this is hard for me, how hard must this be for them? And also sometimes I learn things while I'm struggling, and so I pray that God will help other people going through similar things to learn those things. So we pray all those things, trusting that God will do what is in our best interests. When we're cheerful, when we're happy, when we're in good spirits, when we're encouraged, confident, optimistic, well, we should sing praises. And that word for singing praises started 
as a talking about musical instruments and playing like an instrument, but it came to mean any kind of singing. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, you see this word used here. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, and then here's the word, and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's cheerfulness. It's being optimistic that, that in your heart realizing, James 1.17 says this, right? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing we have comes from God, and God never changes. So when things are going well in your life, man, you just sing praises and say, God, thank you. Look what you gave me. Look at the blessings. And here's the interesting thing. Sometimes you can be cheerful in the midst of difficulty. Because you see God's good. You see his hand. You know that there are things that matter more than this life. Okay. So that was, that was the easiest verse. Not hard to figure out what that's saying or what it means. Let's jump into these next ones. This is challenging. The second thing is this. We need to pray corporately for the spiritual rescue of fellow believers. We need to pray for the spiritual rescue of fellow believers. And this is talking about ultimately spiritual things, but also includes physical things. So let's just read this section. James 5.14, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let me tell you a few of the challenging things in this passage. Well, here's the first one. What exactly? So the elders are supposed to come. They're supposed to anoint you with oil. Well, what is anointing with oil? What is the significance? What's the power of that? What does that mean? And there's three options. We'll get to them later. And I just got to tell you, not 100% sure. And so I'll tell you how I, how I approach that. And then here's another really challenging one in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Does that mean that every single person who's sick, if the elders pray and if they pray in faith, they'll be healed? I grew up in a church that actually believed that's what this passage was teaching. And the pastor had a daughter who was about 12 years old. And one day she says to her dad, hey, dad, I'm 12. Can I take the car and can I drive it? And he said, no, you're 12. You cannot take the car and drive it. So he goes back in the house. She grabs the keys. She goes and gets the car and she decides I'm just going to drive around the block. And while she's driving around the block, she drives through a stop sign and she gets, she gets hit, just gets plowed. And she um, was changed forever. I remember seeing her um, in, a, in a wheelchair. I, I went to the church when this happened, but I remember seeing her in a wheelchair. They would wheel her into church, and uh, she sat in a wheelchair, and there was like a little a tray, like a little kid's tray that you would put food on. And in this tray, there were pictures of food, drink, like there were, f there were pictures of different things on the tray. 
And as she sat in this wheelchair, she would just kind of slobber. She wasn't really in control of herself. And, and if she needed something, she would kind of move one of her hands and she would point to it. And that was one of the most challenging things that happened in that church growing up. And it was challenging and hard because everybody loved the pastor and they loved his kids. But it was challenging and hard because you want to know what happened? The elders and the pastor all got together and they went and prayed for his daughter that she would be healed. And they anointed her with oil. And guess what didn't happen? She didn't get healed. And so a ton of people in the church went to him and said, we're not sure if you should be our pastor because you're not praying in faith and it's your fault that your daughter's not healed because there's a promise right there. It's contingent on people praying in faith. And I, I remember a Sunday where he got up and preached and he just said, I just want you guys to know I've been preaching this and I've been telling everybody this for years and I just want you to know it's not true. Uh, my daughter is not healed because I don't believe or because I don't have enough faith. And so um, here's the thing we know, actually, that was a personal experience, but I want to go beyond that. We know from Scripture that God doesn't want everybody healed. And so then there are some who will look at this passage and they'll say, well, actually, if you look at it, it's talking about sin. And so if you're sick because of sin and then somebody prays in faith, you'll be healed. So that's another view in this passage. Um, another one is, so, so those, are the main, those are the main things here. So let's dig through. Let's talk about this. Uh, sickness here, this word for is any among you sick, that's a serious problem. And definitely in this passage, this is talking about sickness that's not just from sin, but it's also talking about sickness that is from sin. And so um, this is talking about a serious problem and when you think about it, this person's so sick that they have to call the elders to come to them. They're not going to the elders. They're, they're saying, hey, you need to come. So here, here's a lesson we can all learn from this. If you're facing a serious difficulty in physical ailment, which includes other kinds of struggles, if you're in a serious, desperate situation, you should call the elders to pray for you. And the elders need to go. Uh, I've heard of people in big trouble have called leaders of their church and said, will you pray for me? And I know of times that people haven't done that. So it is a responsibility of spiritual leaders, of the leaders in a church, to go and care for people. But it's the responsibility of people to call and ask for help. I know a lot of people are like, I'm sick, and the elders never came and saw me. He's like, well, did you call? Did you ask anyone to come? No. So we have a responsibility to reach out. But if you're in dire spiritual struggle or physical struggle, you should reach out to leaders to pray for you. And I'm just going to tell you why. Because elders love people. They care about people. These are people that God has given them a heart to care for. And so leaders need to love people. Elders live a righteous life. And we're going to find out that righteousness is a huge part of answered prayer. And so you have leaders that love you. You have leaders that are supposed to, over a period of time, have demonstrated spiritual faithfulness in their life. So they should be the kind of people that are close, that are obeying, that God would listen to. And they're people with biblical wisdom. They know God's word. They can offer help. They can offer encouragement and wisdom in life. And so that's why you're calling elders. But I wanted to say, ultimately, 
um, not every elder is always the person they're supposed to be. Sometimes elders can feel like they're the, the spiritual special forces. And, and the moment a person starts thinking that, that's actually arrogant and prideful. So the person who thinks that they've got it all together, God's actually their enemy. And that's this terrible dilemma of picking elders and having good leaders is that you pick a person and you say, you're faithful, you're going to be a leader. And then that person potentially becomes prideful. What a disaster. But, but elders are supposed to be mature, humble, faithful men who love the Lord and who love people and who pray for them. And they're to anoint with oil. So here's a few different options for anointing with all. One is ceremonial, and it's dedication. It's like, it's like to anoint a person and to dedicate them to the Lord. Another one is medical. Do you remember the, um, th- there's this statement that, or there's this, this, one of the views is that that's just talking about taking medicine. God works through doctors. And so the application of this would be if you're sick, go to the doctor. If you're sick, take your medication. Um, there, you remember the, the, uh, the Good Samaritan, when the guy gets beat up, one of the things that he does is he anoints him with oil. Herod the Great, when he was sick at the end of his life and was going to die, took a bath in oil, hoping it would heal him. So some say, no, this is not dedication. This is actually just saying, take your medicine and go to the doctor. Uh, obviously, God is powerful and God is in control, but God works through doctors. Another is that it's cleaning and encouragement. You know how when you're sick, I don't know, I've told my kids this when they were sick, and sometimes if I'm sick, I go take a shower, and I get cleaned up, and I get dressed, because you just feel better. And do you remember when Jesus is talking about fasting, and he says, when you're fasting, don't like have this long face and try to get attention, but one of the things that he mentions is anoint your head with oil. It's like clean yourself up. So those are the three different views on anointing oil, and I'm not 100% sure which one it is, so you know what I tell people? Clean yourself up, go to the doctor, and when we come pray for you, we're going to anoint you and dedicate you to the Lord. So I just do all three. And, um, you know, uh, there's lots of uh, professors I've had that are like, no, you figure it out before you get up there. But I'm not going to just pick something to have an answer. I'm not sure. It's tough to sort that out. And so that's how I approach this. And so we, we just see, so I just say do all three. And one of the things that you see in this is regardless of how that works, where does healing come from? And I'll tell you a few things that are true. Number one, it doesn't come from the elders. And number two, it doesn't come from the oil. There are people who, as they approach religion, they, they start to take symbols and they start to take different things and they actually trust these items instead of trusting God. There are some people who believe that when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, that when you eat the bread, that that bread turns into the body of Jesus. And that when you eat it, you're forgiven of your sin. And it doesn't matter if you know what it is. It doesn't matter if you believe what it is. There's, it's like this magical thing that when you eat that bread, it takes away your sin, apart from faith, knowledge, or anything else. And so people start to trust that instead of trusting Jesus. But one of the things that's clear is it's not the elders and it's not the oil. Look at this. Is anyone sick? Call for the elders and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. God's the one who heals. And if you go to a doctor and they give you medication and you get better, it's God who healed you. And that's the avenue that he used.
And so that's what we do. We anoint with oil. And uh, the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. You know, faith, why do we have faith? Why do we trust God? Well, number one, we have faith because of what the Bible tells us. We need to trust and believe God. We have faith because of the examples in Scripture. And we'll look at one in a minute. But over and over, people have prayed and God has answered prayer. And we have faith because we see the response to God's hand in our life answers to prayer i've prayed for people here i've prayed for circumstances and situations and i pray for people and i just think this isn't going to happen and i just pray in faith and i say lord i know you can make this happen and then it does and in my life over and over when i pray god answers prayer and so those are all the reasons that we have faith and the lord will raise him up now does god heal everyone who's sick See, some people say this, pro- this passage promises that. I know for sure that's wrong. God does not heal everybody who's sick. It is not his plan. Let's just think logically for a second. Um, if God healed everybody who, would, who was sick, like Christians, faithful Christians wouldn't die, right? Because eventually you get old and sick and something in your body fails and you die. And so I just look at life and I see that. But even beyond that, let's look at Scripture um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul talks about a physical ailment caused by a demon in his life. And so this is what it says. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Okay, so this is an amazing thing. God picks Paul and he says, I love you and you're, you're an amazing servant. And you're going to do awesome things for me. But if you become prideful, I will actually have to be your enemy. So I'm going to do something to make sure you don't get prideful. Well, what does he do? So because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So it's some kind of a physical ailment, a messenger of Satan or an angel of Satan or a demon. Uh, Messenger, that word there is angel. Has sent to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. So he had a, a physical ailment caused by a demon. And we saw that all in the New Testament, right? There's all kinds of people who had demonic physical ailments. Now, I don't walk around and just think that everything is a demon, but I just want you to know in our anti-supernaturalistic culture, there's probably a ton of things related to satanic involvement and those kinds of things that are demonic that we just look the other way to. And what we need to realize is that this was true then, and it's still true now. We are in a spiritual battle, but Paul was sick because of a a physical ailment, and he prayed and pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times it says he prayed, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so... um, So we wonder what this is. Some people think it was a problem with his eyes. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul talks about how his ailment and his being with them was a burden to them. And he says to them, I know that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. So he had some kind of an eye struggle. At the end of the book, he says, look how huge these letters are that I'm writing with. So he probably had some kind of an eye thing. And one of the things I think about is you think about just the, the people in Scripture that just mocked him and that had no respect for him and just all those kinds of things. Like this was a burden, and I wonder if it brought on some of the things that caused humility in his life. And he prayed in faith knowing that God could do it, and God said, no, that is not in your best interest. 
And so God heals us when it's in his best interest and in a way that is in his best interest. But there's something that we need to think about here in this passage, and that is this, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then it goes on in talking about asking your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you. Therefore, your confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So is sin, is sickness caused by sin? And the answer to that we know is not always, right? Look at this. John chapter 9, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And, and so th- I always think this is interesting. <laughs> he was born blind. Was it because he sinned? He wasn't born yet. Uh, what sin did he commit in the womb? I mean, it was a weird question, but they just felt like all sickness was because of sin. And then it says, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes people are sick simply for God's purpose and God's plan. It is not always because of sin. But you want to know something? There's a lot of people who have physical sickness because of sin. Did you know that? That sometimes sin is because of sickness, or sickness is because of sin. Specifically, I'm going to give you a, a few examples. But one, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? They walk into church and they lie, and God kills them in front of the church. So that's like the ultimate sickness. You're put to death. So don't come here and lie to any of the leaders. That's a bad idea. Um, and uh, there, there are other examples of that. But look at this. Hebrews chapter, or 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, the context of this is these Corinthians were fighting with each other over dumb things. Now, this is something I think is amazing about the Corinthian church. They prided themselves as being not judgmental. And there's a guy who's having an affair. He's living with his mother-in-law. And he comes into church and nobody says anything about it. Nobody gets involved and confronts sin. Why? Because they're loving and they accept everyone. But if you want to pick a church in the New Testament that is the most divisive and critical and sinful and selfish and has the most difficulty over stupid things, guess who that was? The Corinthian church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They used to say, Paul, you're so unimpressive, you don't speak that well. And, and you think about it, Paul's preaching. He preaches so long that a guy falls asleep, falls out of a window, and dies. That's why we have you guys sitting in chairs. We don't want anyone dying here. And uh, the Apostle Paul is kind of cool because he went down and he raised the guy from the dead. I just want you to know you fall over and die here this morning. I can't help you. I'll pray for you, though. We'll get the elders. We'll see what happens. But So a church that disregards God, disregards his standards about being involved in each other's lives and calls it love is not a loving church. And in 1 Corinthians here, it says, that is why many of you are weak, the same word, 
is used in this passage, as in our James passage. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now think of that. You have an attitude problem towards people in church. You're harboring sin in your life. You show up and take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. In the Corinthian church, God made people sick. He made them weak. He made them ill, and he killed some of them. And so the question is, can unrepentant sin, can part of how God judges that, deals with that, disciplines, can that be physical sickness? And the answer to that is yes. Sometimes people are sick and sometimes terrible things happen to them and it's God's discipline in their life. So we need to take sin seriously. Part of how you love people in the body of Christ is to address the sin issues in their life. This, this whole idea of I love you and I'm not going to judge you and it's none of my business, that is not a Christian biblical idea at all. Uh, we, are to be, we are to love each other, to care about each other, to be involved in each other's lives. And that's the point of verse 16 of James here where it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, confessing sins to one another, of course, if you sin against somebody, you, can, you should confess it. But I think this is just saying go to people and share the things you're struggling with. Your righteous brothers and sisters in Christ, share what you're struggling with and ask for help. What does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 say? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. See, one of the things that Satan tries to do is to say you're the only one going through this. Nobody can understand you. Nobody knows what you're going through, and that is not true. There is no temptation, no struggle, no difficulty that you face that everybody doesn't face. And so what you want to do when you're struggling with a sin in your life is you want to find spiritually mature, faithful people and go talk to them about it. See, that's one of the worst things about the church, and, and I think there's two things. One is when you get these churches that are full of people that have these ridiculous ideas of what love means, that I don't step into your life and address sin or confront sin or encourage you to obey God or try to pull you back to what's right. Like, that's ridiculous. And then there's another ridiculous idea where everybody feels like they have to pretend they're perfect and that they don't struggle, and nobody can own up to things that they're struggling with because of the way that they're judged. The church should be a place where you should be able to find spiritually mature people and say, hey, I'm struggling. And part of what that means is that people don't hide the things that they're struggling with. Now, I'm not saying that you should go tell everybody everything that you struggle with. But you should find faithful, righteous people if you're struggling with sin, if you've confessed it, if you said, God, please help me with this, but it's an ongoing thing in your life, go find some people who can come alongside you and who can help you, who will pray for you, who will give you some advice. Hey, here's how I overcame this in my life. Try this. And so that's what God is calling us to here. We see it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spiritual, spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, that's humility and helping people in love and in humility. So that's what God's calling us to do in the body of Christ. Guess what? 
It's not just the elders that are superheroes, that are righteous, that they're the only ones who can pray for you. Go find any righteous person in the church and ask them to pray for you because you know what? God loves all of us and God cares about all of us and he doesn't just answer the prayer of the leaders in a church. But hopefully, if you go to leaders, they are faithful. Okay, so we ask our leaders to pray for us. We ask each other to pray And now let's look at this example, and I love this. Pray powerfully in faith. Pray powerfully in faith from a righteous life. Look at what it says in James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. That's the principle. Prayer is powerful. It makes a difference. It changes things. Um, we've, we were talking about God's will, right? How God's sovereign and everything, how he's in control of everything. And I, I know people that they grab a hold of that, they embrace it, they love it. God's sovereign control was a very hard doctrine for me. I didn't like it when I first read it, but one of the things I've learned in life is it actually doesn't matter what I think or what I prefer. What matters is what God says. And so I've embraced that completely because the Bible clearly teaches it. But there are other things that the Bible teaches. I actually have heard sermons on prayer that says prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes you. We don't pray because it actually changes something in life. We pray because God tells us to pray. So prayer is just an act of obedience. I've heard a lot of people say things like that. God has planned out every detail in the course of history. So how could your prayer actually change anything? Well, I believe that God has planned out every single detail in the entire entirety of history and that everything happens the way he wants it to because that's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says that prayer changes things. And I believe that when you pray, the outcome of life is different because of prayer. Why do I think that? Well, it says it right here. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he uses Elijah as an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Have you ever read the Bible and felt like, yeah, but these are spiritual superheroes and I can't, you know, Samson just like killed 1,000 people with a jawbone of a donkey and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got, they got thrown into a furnace and they didn't burn up. They walked out and they were fine. I mean, it's like, do you ever look at things and stories in the Bible and think, oh, yeah, but, but I can't do that. Um, I think it was Elisha was... It was either Elijah or Elisha, but I think it was Elisha was bald, and uh, some people were mocking him about being bald, and he called some bears out of the jungle to come attack them. You guys remember that? Um, I teased you about being bald this morning. I apologize. Um, but you want to know something? The people described in the Old Testament are people just like us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, does that say, um, you know, Elijah prayed out of obedience, but um, it was going to rain anyway. That's not what that says, right? It says he prayed, and then it rained. When you read the story about the prayer, a few things. First of all, God said, go pray for rain. So he went to pray for rain. The other thing is he prays and seven times he's praying and he says to his servant, go look for clouds. 
And so the guy runs up a hill, looks for clouds, and there's no clouds. He comes back, yeah, no clouds. He, he just keeps praying, and he says, go look for clouds. And he does that seven times. And finally, the guy goes up to the top, and he says, guess what? I see this, like, little tiny cloud. And he's like, okay, good. Go tell the king you better get home because it's about to rain. <laughs> but you know what? He prayed, and he wasn't praying like it didn't matter if he prayed. He was all wrapped up in this. Because he had said certain things were going to happen and God spoke through him and so he cared about whether or not these things happened and he was praying and God says that because of his prayer that it rained. You know, there are other examples of prayer. Um, Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20 is sick. And he, um, the prophet comes to him and he says, hey Hezekiah, get your affairs in order because you're going to die. And so the prophet's walking out Hezekiah prays. He says, God, I've loved you. I've cared about you. I've tried to serve you faithfully. Please let me live. And God says to this prophet while he's walking out, okay, go back and tell Hezekiah that I heard his prayer. I'm going to add 15 years to his life. Um, I, I've referred to this before. I was talking about Mike says, yeah, I bet that 15 years didn't seem too long. But God extended his life 15 years because he prayed. You know, there's one example after another in Scripture of people who prayed. Now, here's how I reconcile that with God's sovereignty. He was on a path to die. God wanted him to live, and so he decided sovereignly that somebody would pray and that when they prayed, he would change his mind because of their prayer. It is inaccurate to say that prayer doesn't change things and prayer doesn't affect the outcome of life. That is not, a, that is not an accurate statement. It does. And, and I would just say big picture, that's how I think about it. I'm not sure I fully understand how sovereignty and our responsibility fit together, but these are things I know are true because this is what the Bible says. And so we need to pray knowing that prayer matters. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 says, you must also help us by prayer so that many thanks will be given on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Like nobody in Scripture thinks prayer doesn't matter. And so my encouragement for us this morning is that we will pray, that we'll pray for people, that we'll pray from a righteous life to a loving Heavenly Father that we can trust to do the best thing. Whether or not it's what we want, we know that God will do what is in our best interest. And so pray for elders Ask elders to pray for you. They need your prayer too, but ask them to pray for you when you need it. Pray for each other. Live a righteous life. Pray in faith. Man, it's so awesome. So I want to just end with this and just throw out some conditions to answered prayer. Sometimes God doesn't answer prayer, and I want to give you some reasons why. Number one, um, God answers prayer that is in Jesus' name. John chapter 14, verse 12 through 15 when you pray in Jesus' name, now those are not magic words at the end of your prayer. If you tack in Jesus' name onto it, doesn't mean it's going to happen. Praying in Jesus' name means you pray on his behalf. You pray as though he would pray. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, and, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I mean, that's our prayer. That's praying in Jesus' name. And you know when you're doing that because verse 15 says, if you love me, you'll obey me. So 
You want to know if your prayers are in Jesus' name? Well, I don't know. Is your life lived out in Jesus' name? Is it a, is it a, a life lived with obedience? When we pray according to God's will, First John says, if we pray, we know that God hears us, and if he hears us, he's going to give us what we ask for if it's in God's will. Um, pray for a, from a righteous life. We just led, read that. A life unhindered by sin. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayer because we're in sin. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And for all you ladies out there, 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers are not hindered. You can say to your husband, hey, you're not being very understanding. You want God to answer your prayer? Better start being nice to me. So think about that. I mean, even just not living right in marriage can hinder prayer. So live righteously and persistently. Pray for things over and over. Keep asking. God loves you. He cares you, cares about you. So be persistent in your prayer. But you know what? One of the things, just a reminder for the Apostle Paul, he prayed three times and God said no three times and he quit asking. And so there's, it's not praying with a rebelliousness. But it's just saying, God, I know you love me and you care about me. I'm going to keep asking. And so to be persistent. So to wrap it all up, prayer is powerful. We need to be people who are praying. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, thank, us, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that you love us, that we are in your family. And Lord, we can think about how we love our kids and how we work toward their best interests. And we don't always give them what they want because what they want is not always good for them. Lord, sometimes we discipline our kids and we take things away from them just because they're not being faithful to us. And Lord, as we think about you and your relationship with us, you love us with a perfect love. You care about us. You answer prayer. And Lord, there are times that we give our kids things because they ask and because we want to. And Lord, we know that you love us so much more than we love our kids. And Lord, we're just so thankful for your word, for the way we've seen you interact in history and that as we study passages like this that are challenging, we can look all over scripture to learn important things. Help us to be a church that ultimately is in submission to you and loves you. And Lord, a church that prays and that this church will do well and be effective and be powerful in its ministry because you're in the things that we're doing in your name. Amen.